Tim, I'm going to use the pastor mic, so can you turn that one on? You can hear me well? All right. Thank you for your patience today. Uh, Just make sure only one is on, Tim. Good? All right. Turn it down a little bit. It's like ringing a little bit. There we go. Thank you for your patience with us today with these microphones. It's like nothing works. Um, I, I don't know. We, we do soundtracks, but it doesn't work. Well, God is good nonetheless. You guys sounded wonderful and beautiful today, so I just want to thank you for that. Um, as we think about our sermon today, um, I'm kind of a statistics nut. I like to look at things, and one of the things I, I'm always fascinated by, um, strangely, I guess, I don't know why, but uh, is the CDC and their little statistics they put out on uh, the number of deaths and uh, how, particularly in America, how people die. And I know that sounds morbid and sad and everything, but, but it does fascinate me because as I was particularly thinking about this text, I, I was drawn to go there and just kind of say, okay, what happens recently? How do people, how are people dying in America, particularly centered around not, not, um, you know, because of health and things like that, but, but because of injury? You know, whenever I'm fascinated, every week when I'm going home, I go down Rolling Road and I see like the extreme bike riders, you know, the ones that are going down and like riding their bikes on the hills and jumps and doing all these crazy stuff. And I just wonder like how many of those guys walk out of there without breaking their leg or something like that. And so I'm always fascinated by that. And so I looked at the statistics and and in 2014, uh, the CDC reported that among unintentional deaths, that is, it was not your intention to die, right? We hope we understand what that is. Uh, unintentional, it was not their intention. Uh, the number one leading cause, this is blow, blew my mind, was poisoning. Unintentional poisoning was the leading cause in America uh, among all age groups. The leading cause is unintentional poisoning. And then secondly to that, which isn't probably surprising, is motor vehicle accidents. So I just was fascinated though that poisonings uh, superseded, and, and I would say there's probably maybe uh, unintentional meaning that someone poisoned someone else, right? So uh, statistically, it's, there's a high chance someone might poison you and you die. Um, so, and then thirdly, which uh, perhaps isn't surprise either, uh, the third leading cause of death uh, due to injury in America is unintentional falls. And that's particular among those 65 and older. And so, uh, which isn't, if you've had um, maybe a family member who's fallen and, and succumbed to that injury, uh, that one there is one that I have always been uh, quite fascinated how that happens. But, uh, but those are the three things. Now, among intentional deaths, um, number one in America is suicide. And so that pr- probably isn't particularly surprising. Number two, homicide by firearm. Given our particular context, that's not surprising either. And then thirdly, um, among all adults would be poisoning. Poisoning. So, and that would be intentional poisoning. Um, so why, why, why mention those things? Why think about those things? Well, frankly, it's dangerous to live in this world. It's dangerous to live in this world, isn't it? I mean, you, things can happen. We, you know, can be doing something innocent as riding a bicycle and someone hitting us or something as casual as driving a car and getting in a car accident or, or something that is really quite simple and that's just falling. And given our particular health or age, that may be the one injury that we succumb to. But as Christians, 
there's something even greater. There's even a greater danger for Christians. And that is following Jesus. In the particular passage we'll look at this morning, there is a grave danger in following Jesus. In fact, those that walked with Jesus the closest were the ones that died the soonest. If you're visiting with us this morning, or maybe have taken a break, I guess, from church, um, we've been making our way through the Gospel of Mark. Over the last few months, we've been looking, going just really verse by verse, thinking about who Jesus is and what does it look like to follow Him. And in this particular passage, we really find those things intersected again, um, as that's the point of Mark's Gospel, is thinking about who is Jesus and what does it look like to follow Him. Uh, Jesus has been uh, sending his disciples out to proclaim the gospel, to share the good news of the kingdom of God. And uh, in the midst of them going out and returning, Mark tells us a quite fascinating story that may on the surface seem as if it has nothing to do with following Jesus. Uh, an innocuous story that, that is about someone unrelated to what Jesus and his disciples are doing. If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to open to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. If you're using one of the black pew Bibles, not the red ones, that's the large print one. I don't know the page number in that one. But if you have a black pew Bible, the page is 841. If you're not familiar where Mark is, Mark chapter 6. The large numbers in your Bible are the, are the chapter numbers, and those smaller numbers are the verse numbers. Um, they, those aren't footnotes, but those are the small numbers. So if you're not familiar with looking at God's Word, uh, we're going to be in chapter 6, so big number 6, and then small number 14. Um, should have a title, something about the death of John the Baptist. Mark chapter 6 and verse 14. Hear the Word of the Lord. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said... John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in Jesus. But others said, Jesus is Elijah. And others said, Jesus is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him, and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when, Herod's, for when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest. And the king said to the girl, Ask for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he bowed to her, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. 
And she came in and immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oath and his guest, he did not want to break his vow to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring Jesus' head. He went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Friends, following Jesus is costly. It may even cost you your life. Following Jesus, the Son of Man, is costly. That's what we see in this passage. And frankly, it's quite clear that John did everything right, yet paid the ultimate price for doing right. He stood up to sin, and it cost him his head. But what are we to learn of such a story like this? We think about our own context. We don't live in a particular country where this would quite be possible. Perhaps not at the level we see. So what are we to learn from this? Does this story have anything to do with us? I think it does. And I think the, the reality of the costliness of following Jesus is just as applicable to it was to John in the first century as it is to us here in the 21st century. If you will, with your Bibles open, just turn over two pages in your Bible to Mark chapter 8 and verse 34. Matthew and Luke tell the same story. But only Mark gives the vivid details that he gives. Matthew and Luke give sort of the cliff notes of, of what happened. But, but both of them, in arranging their Gospels, places this story around Peter's confession and Jesus' words here in Mark chapter 8 and verse 34. And I think it will help give us light as to the purpose of the passage. Look at verse 34. And calling the crowd to Jesus with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever will lose his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be also ashamed when he comes in glory of his Father and with his holy angels. Friends, John fulfilled that passage. In the midst of adultery, in the midst of fornication, in the midst of sin, John stood upon the word of Christ, upon God's word, and he called sin, sin. And it cost him his life. It cost him his head. So what are we to learn from John and from this 
particular narrative. I just want to give us three lessons to learn, I think. Mark outlines for us three lessons that we can learn, practical in our hearts and lives today. First, remember that this world remains hostile to Christians. Hostile towards the gospel and will stop at nothing to silence the message of the gospel. We live in a hostile world. We see in the narrative, Mark tells us that there is a paranoid king. King Herod is paranoid about Jesus. We see that the story begins by really these three opinions about who Jesus is. You know, Jesus was doing a lot of great things. He was healing people. And the word on the street was, who is this guy? How does he do these things? Now, we've seen that. We've seen that his parents asked, his mom, excuse me, asked that. His brothers and his sisters asked that question. Uh, people in town asked the question, like, who is this Jesus fella? What's he doing? What's going on? How is he able to do the things that he's doing? And so we see Herod asking the same questions. Word has gotten to Herod of Jesus and his miracles. And we see Herod uh, asking this question. Notice what he said. Look at verse 14. Some were saying John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. Hey, that's it. Okay. John's been killed, and he's been raised from the dead, and, 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 and he's sort of reincarnated in Jesus, right? This is just sort of picking up a little bit of their uh, Greco-Roman understanding of humanity and of spirits. This isn't biblical. This is just what people thought. So don't, don't confuse this for truth. This is just what people were saying. Others were saying in verse 15 that he's Elijah. Uh, in Malachi, Malachi prophesied that uh, when the Messiah came, an Elijah-like person would come. Well, Jesus, in just a matter of a chapter or so, is going to say to his disciples that John the Baptist is Elijah. But he came in the spirit of Elijah. And so this was just a natural thing that people thought that uh, when uh, the Messiah came, an Elijah-like figure came. And so they thought, well, maybe Jesus is Elijah. Uh, We see also that maybe they think that he's a prophet, that Jesus is a prophet. All of this reminds us that just having just a high view of Jesus doesn't save us. So if you come this morning, not a Christian, but you have this really high view of who Jesus is, like you think, you know, he's a good guy, he's a moral teacher, he's a prophet, Friends, that's not sufficient for salvation. These people had a high view of who Jesus was, yet we're not followers of Jesus. And so what are we to take? What we see here is that the purpose for John's arrest and ultimately his death was to silence his message that he had. Mark tells us that Herod killed John because John was standing up to Herod and his sin. Mark tells us what was going on. Um, Look with me at verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Um, In essence, John, excuse me, in essence, Herod had entered into a sinful marriage. Herodias was married to his brother. Herod is married to a woman. He sends his wife packing because he wants to marry his brother's wife. And so he convinces Herodias to marry him, thus causing Herodias to divorce her husband, Philip, 
which was Herod's brother. <laughs> a messed up situation all the way around. On top of that, we're going to see in a moment, he's got his niece dancing seductively in front of him. Herod was really, really messed up. And this man was full of sin. And so, what John is doing is saying, Herod, what you are doing is sinful. God's Word does not permit you to do that. Let's just think about this for a second. Where was John getting this? In Leviticus, your favorite book in the Bible. In chapter 18. And you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. Thinking about that relationship and what he did. And then in chapter 20 and verse 21. If a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity or it's sinful. John was standing on the truth of God's word and he was saying, Herod, what you are doing is wrong. It is sin. And so we see that Herod tried to silence him, tried to shut him up. Look, you're going to wreck my kingdom. You're going to ruin my kingdom. And what we see here is that the sins of the king is reflective of the sins of the people. As Jesus said in chapter 8 and verse 36, if you deny me and my words, where? In this adulterous and sinful generation. John the Baptist stood on the word of Jesus. He didn't go back on it. He, he was willing to stand on the truth of God's word regardless of what it cost. And what I want you to see here is that the wickedness of both the king and the queen are seeking to be hostile towards, towards God and His Word. And that's the truth for here today. What we see here is Herodias acting in grudgery and plotting to kill John because he stood up to her. Because he wouldn't allow her to remain in her sin and her rebellion. John stood on the Word of God, and it cost him. Friends, if you're familiar with the Netflix uh, sort of popular show, Making a Murderer, uh, what we see in these pages is in fact that, a making of a murderer. What we see in, the pa in this passage is how the king and the queen conspire to murder another human being. This is what we see in this passage, and it reminds us that the kingdom of darkness is always against the kingdom of light. There's a conflict, a cosmic conflict between God's kingdom and everyone else. God's kingdom and everyone else. And as sinners, we are a part of a kingdom. Whether it be our own kingdoms or someone else's kingdom, we are part of a kingdom. What I mean is, is that you and I, because of our sin, rebel against God and live life the way we want to. We set ourselves up as king and queen. That's what Adam and Eve were doing in the garden. Uh, they said, God, yeah, we recognize you're a king, um, that you have authority over us. But we don't really particularly like your authority. We, we think we could do a better job than you. And so we're going to take your crown and we're going to put it on our head. And that's what they did. And so God says, well, you can't be in my kingdom anymore if you're not going to recognize me as king. So get out of my kingdom. So he kicks them out of the garden. We see the same thing in Israel. Uh, the nation of Israel were to be led by God. God was to be their king. What does 1 Samuel tell us? The people didn't want God to be their king. Rather, they wanted to be like the world around them. 
They wanted to be like every other nation that had a king. And they rejected God as their king. And they paid the price for it. Terribly. People lost their lives because they had rebelled against the king. And the Bible tells us that that's the, the reality of our own hearts and lives. The sinners. That we too rebel against God. So I ask you, who's the king of your life? Is Jesus the king? Can you sing the song we sang earlier? Look, ye saints, the sight is glorious. Crown him, crown him. Well, what are we singing there? We're taking the crowns off our own heads and saying we're crowning him. We're crowning, crowning him, Lord. We're crowning him, the ruler of our lives, the one who has authority over it. We're taking the authority that we really didn't even have to begin with and we're giving it back to the king. Remember, friends, remember, brothers and sisters, that there is hostility in this world, hostility to the gospel. It will always be that way until the king returns. So we can trust that God is a good God and that there's nothing wrong with our own lives when we meet hostility. Secondly, be encouraged that even the most faithful or the greatest disciple suffers at the hand of evil. Be encouraged this morning that even the greatest follower of Christ there ever was suffered terribly at the hand of evil. And how can we say that John the Baptist was the greatest? Well, because Jesus said he was the greatest. <laughs> Jesus says there's not one born of, of woman greater than John the Baptist. He faithfully followed his, his God. He faithfully followed. He wasn't perfect. He wasn't sinless. Though he was a sinner like us, but he repented and trusted in, in his Savior. He, he repented and trusted in God. And Jesus says that, that there's no one born greater than him. And yet he suffered terribly. We see in this passage that even Herod recognized John's greatness. Look at verse 20. For Herod feared John knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, yet he heard him gladly. He heard him gladly. Herod had mixed feelings about John. He had a sense of fear and appreciation for him, but notice that fear and appreciation didn't materialize into genuine faith and repentance. This king had a knowledge that was not sufficient to save him. He knew that, that John was righteous. He knew that he, he, he was holy. He had enough truth to get himself into some serious trouble. That's where this king was. Friends, it is a reminder that faithfulness to God does not protect us from trial. In fact, as Christians, we should expect it. We, we shouldn't be surprised when God in, invites us into suffering. When we see Jesus suffering, and then He says, come and follow Me, we should recognize that we too will suffer. When Jesus says, take up your cross and follow Me, take up a device that is used for torture and torment and murder and carry it, in, on your back. And Jesus says, I want you to pick up that device and I want you to follow me. Friends, we should be recognized that we are going to suffer. 
James says that we should count it all joy when we suffer. For when we suffer, what happens? We receive a crown, glorious crown. Maybe this morning you've come and, and you've been suffering in your life. Maybe it's physical suffering. Maybe it's emotional suffering. Maybe it's suffering because you're trying to be faithful in your job to follow Jesus and, and you won't submit yourselves to sinfulness. Maybe you're willing to stand up against particular practices that your business, unethical things, and, and, and when you stand up against it, people laugh at you and, and ridicule you, but you're standing on the Word of God and, and you will not let your morals be changed. Friends, we will suffer. Brothers and sisters, we're going to suffer in this world. It's just the reality of the fact that we will suffer. So I want to encourage you that even the most faithful suffer. Thirdly, we see in this passage a warning that following Jesus is costly. We see a warning that following Jesus is costly. In verse 21, we're told that an opportunity came on Herod's birthday. Herod was going to throw a party. Jews hated this. Jews hated birthdays. They thought that they were uh, sinful. It was something that the Romans loved to do. It was, a, it was from Greek culture, and so they despised it. But here we see Herod, um, the so-called king of the Jews, giving himself a birthday banquet. And notice who's, in, who's invited to this party. is isn't the people on the streets. No, it's the, it's the who's who of Galilee, right? Those that were there hobnobbing among these elites, the nobles, the commanders, the, command, the military commanders, probably those Roman soldiers, leaders and commanders, leading men of Galilee. This was the party to be at. The party of the century. This, is the, this was the party to be at. And Herod, in typical fashion, threw a party full of licentiousness, and drunkenness, and ultimately cost himself because of it. We were told by Mark that an opportunity arose. Herodias pounced on this opportunity. Here's an opportunity. I'm going to send my daughter in to dance seductively before Herod and his friends. And surely, mix that with some alcohol and emotions and something grand is going to happen. And sure it did. And that's what we see happening here. Herodias' daughter is sent in and is danced, and we don't really quite know. I've mentioned seductive, and I think the text leads itself to that because it says that, that they found pleasure in it. We don't know particular. She was probably maybe 13 or 14 years old. She goes in. Fascinatingly enough, Herodias sends her own daughter. She can't do it herself. She subjects her own child to this kind of behavior, indicating the kind of culture in which these leaders were leading in their lives. And so naturally we see the king is overwhelmed, perhaps drunk, perhaps overwhelmed in pleasure and satisfaction, and he says, ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. Ask me whatever you want and I'll give, I'll give you up to have my kingdom. And, and this braggadocious claims, things that he couldn't even fulfill himself, I mentioned this, but Herod wasn't even a king. 
He didn't have a kingdom to give away. He was a puppet in the hands of the Romans. The fact that he called himself a king is what ultimately cost him his life and his job. Him and his wonderful wife Herodias were banished in AD 39 because he went to Rome demanding that he be called king. And Caesar says, okay, you can call yourself king on your own little island that I'm about to send you to. King Herod was no king. What we see here is that John suffers at the hand of a wicked queen, just like Elisha. If you're familiar with your Bible, Elijah was a godly man himself. And Elijah faced a very wicked king, queen himself. And when he faced the, his little wicked queen, she did the exact same thing to him. And it ultimately cost him his freedom as well. So wicked Jezebel went in and did her thing. What do we see here? It's costly to follow Jesus. John is just following Jesus. It's all he's doing. He's just being faithful to follow Jesus. And what is it doing? It's costing him his life. But friends, we are reminded that the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. That though John dies that day, that wasn't the end. That wasn't like he kept going. That nothing that kings have ever tried to do can stop God and His people. In fact, as Tertullian, the quote I just said from Tertullian, that's exactly what happens. What we see here is that the king is sorry for his decision. He's sorrowful because he knows what he did was wicked and wrong and he probably confessed and repented of it the next day, but the, the deed was done. John's head, in gruesome fashion, was removed on a platter displayed in humility. Humiliation. But John's death reminds us of another death. And if you were to lay the words of Mark 6 to the death of Jesus, you will find staggering similarities. The tragic death of John, although signaling the end of his life and ministry, was a foreshadow of a death that was to come in a matter of months. Jesus, too, was innocent yet taken and arrested. Jesus, too, was righteous and holy, had done nothing wrong to deserve to be arrested. Jesus, too, was murdered by a man who chose popular opinion over. That's what Herod did. He was sorry because of his guests and his word. He cared more about his word than he, than he cared about the life of John. Jesus, too, was buried by his disciples. But Jesus was different. Jesus didn't stay dead. Jesus, unlike John, really did rise from the dead signaling that what he did accomplished 
what, excuse me, what he did was accomplished on the cross. If he just stayed dead, then what happened on the cross really was, a, it was just sad, pitiful, tragic. But the fact that he rose again demonstrates that he is victorious. Friends, brothers and sisters, following Jesus is costly. It may cost you at work. It may cost you family members and friends. It may cost you siblings. It may cost you a raise, a better job. It may even cost you your wife. The question is, will you follow him? Will you, like John, follow Christ in such faithful ways? A man by the name of Jim Elliott was a missionary to the Onca Indians. On January 2nd, 1956, a day in which he had longed for since his days at Wheaton College, ministering for three years in the jungles of Ecuador, the day had arrived where he could finally, along with his other team of missionaries, share the gospel with the people that he so longed to see converted. They went out that day to meet with them. They announced their arrival, and they waited. But no one came. But they continued to wait. And then across the river they saw two women coming. Familiar women who they have talked to before. Thinking them to be friendly, they proceeded to welcome them and talk with them. Unbeknownst to them, it was a trap. It was designed to split the group in such a way so that the men could sweep down and kill them. On that day, Jim Elliott, along with five other missionaries, were slaughtered. Because they wanted to share the gospel with them. But that wasn't the end of the line. Jim's wife, Elizabeth, waited. She was back at their camp waiting for a phone call. I'm sure, excited, hoping the gospel had been shared. Maybe someone had been won to Christ. But the call never came. Fascinatingly enough, Elizabeth doesn't leave. She stays. And two years later, she moves into the village of the people that murdered her own husband. In fact, Elizabeth and her two kids stayed their entire life. And today, there's still a thriving ministry, church, People came to faith in Christ. Elizabeth served there even up until her death last year, just last fall, she passed away. Her husband wrote probably one of the most famous words any missionary has ever said. Not only because he said them, and they're true, because he lived them. I think they would have had the same weight had Jim said them and lived, but friends, they have such weight because he fulfilled them. Elliot wrote, 
in his journal. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Will you count the cost of following Jesus? Will you believe in Him today? Will you, if you are a Christian, turn from your sin and trust in Him, cling to Him, whatever the cost? Will you believe and trust in so such a sweet Savior who will save you? Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank You for the death of Christ for our sin. As we think about our own sinfulness and rebellion, we're overwhelmed by our sin. But knowing that even though we are sinners and rebels that You have offered in Christ a free gift of sacrifice, that we are invited to repent and trust in You, that You can save even the worst of sinners for Your glory. So now we pray that You would seal our hearts by Your eternal Word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, let's conclude our time this morning by singing the power of the cross. Thinking about the power of the cross to save sinners, even sinners like us, sufficient to save because it is sufficient Savior. So let's stand and sing together.